Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, the world's most timely and regular Great Lakes podcast. My name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I know a lot about writing home and seeing signs that say birds don't exist and wondering what that means, but I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, what's up? Um, I not 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 much is up, but I believe that birds don't exist thing is like the whole like are birds real or are they just yeah? I mean that's a whole conspiracy theory that we don't want to cover on the show. Well, I, I know I just found out about so so actually so yeah I wrote I wrote home so I, I we were going to record this and so I I um, had to leave the office and ride to my mobile studio which is in my house. And, uh, and so I wrote home in two notable, I saw this guy holding up a sign that said birds don't exist. It was a big flag on campus. And so when you see a sign like that, there's only one reaction to have, and that's bleep yeah. And so I gave him like a bleep yeah, birds don't exist. And then I realized, what did I just agree to? I mean, in principle, I agree, maybe birds don't exist, but but is what what is this? So I need to do some Googling. So listener, birds probably exist. And and I just need to find out about that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, there's a whole can of worms. I mean, happy reading there. Oh, is there really? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. All right. Well, there we go. So, uh, and that will count then um, as this week's. No, it won't actually. I was going to have a Great Lake factoid, but it's a different Great Lake factoid, and we're not sure. And then the other thing happened. So I got this cool electric bike. I don't know. Have I told you about this? It's like a it's a a, a cargo bike for the kids can ride on the back, and it's electric. Um, and the cool thing is, like, it's got like a little throttle, and so when you're at a standstill, you can kind of get going. And so I pulled up behind some kid. We're at the red light. I was riding home, and I was like, Ah, let me show you. It's done, man. And so I got ready, the light turned, and I went to engage my throttle. And then I looked at his bike frame. It also had a battery on it. I was like, so, so electric. <laughs> so then I uh, just kind of fell in line behind him. Very sad. Anyway, but here I am, mobile studio. <laughs> None of that has anything to do with any of this. Uh, so we will start off. We have some follow-up, some feedback from a listener. And this is from the great uh, Emily, one of our listeners. And uh, if you remember a couple episodes ago, last episode, I don't know what happened last episode, but a couple episodes ago, we actually had Hope Charters, the original Teach Me About the Great Lakes co-host. Uh, and she was talking about visiting um, a friend of our, colleague of ours on, on Bois Blanc Island, or as I call it, Boys Blank Island. And um, she saw some pudding stone, and I didn't know a lot about pudding stone. Um, and so listener, or the great Emily, reached out. But before I tell you what she told me about pudding stone, that is going to be the Great Lakes factoid for this week. As soon as I find, there it is. It's a Great Lakes factoid, a Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. And so uh, Emily says via Twitter, the pudding stone contains spots of jasper. Uh, early Brits called it pudding stone because it reminded them of a pudding, which is a steamed fruit cake yeah. from back home called Spotted Dick, which contains dried fruit. And uh, as someone who was at one point a teenage boy, I know a lot about Spotted I know Spotted Dick was a, a common gag gift, I guess, but I've never actually eaten Spotted Dick. Yeah, they had that on um, the, I don't, the Great British Baking Show at one point oh, did they? They, there's a couple of things where they're doing like the steamed puddings and it, it's kind of cool that's really cool thank yeah. you emily there you go <laughs> yeah so uh there it is it's all about the spotted dick and then the second thing of course is it is lakey season and uh, if you're listening to this 
shortly after release it, you have uh, about a week left to nominate things for the Lakeys. So what I want you to do is go to bitly.com slash Lakeys21, L-A-K-I-E-S-2-1. And that's bitly.com. Or you can go to bit.ly slash Lakeys21, as Hope will tell you. And nominate things for Lakeys. we got a lot of great categories ranging from like Science Communication of the Year, News Story of the Year, Coolest Thing You Learned on Teaching About the Great Lakes of the Year, Great Lakes Animal of the Year, you know, all, all kind of stuff. But the nominations close on December 1st. And so we like to feature a Lakey nominee this time of year. And the one I'm going to feature is actually done by a friend and colleague of ours, Elliot uh, Nelson. He works with Michigan Sea Grant. And he's got this cool thing, yeah, called Michigan Birding 101. And I'm presenting this one to make up for the fact that I said bleep yeah to the birds don't exist. Um, and so anyway, uh, so what this is, is this is a webinar series. It started early this year. He had a four part series about birding tips, winter bird ID, backyard bird feeding, and those sorts of things. So you can go out and check out those four as we head into the winter. Um, and that'll be cool. And then there's a fall series about autumn bird IDs and raptors. Um, I'm not sure if that's like the dinosaurs, probably not, but maybe it's not the dinosaurs, you silly. Okay. Ha ha ha. Yeah, no, it's not. It's a, it's a bird. I don't know. What is that? Hawks and, um, yeah, like birds of prey, right? Yeah. Birds of prey. Yeah. Anyway, we can talk about Harley Quinn. Nope. (laughs) Oh, that's a, that's a, is that a Marvel or a DC? A DC, but yeah. Um, but no, that series was like wildly popular. And they said that, um, it was one of the things that they thought was cool. Elliot and the colleagues at Michigan Sea Grant, they thought it was cool, um, because it allowed them to reach so many more people, but then they also had to learn a lot more about the species that were in different locations which is a really cool thing that is really cool so anyway i've I've seen i think one of the michigan birding 101s and you know it's not just michigan uh so wherever you are in the great lakes go check it out good tips and elliot's a great guy and they of course do good work at michigan sea grant and so it's a really great resource and a really great webinar series but will it win a lakey tune in to find out also because we would be remiss not to say this michigan does touch four of the five great lakes so it sort of makes sense that michigan featured on the teach me about the great lakes that's why it's shaped like a hand right uh it's because it's touching all the great lakes right <laughs> two mittens wait the top one's a mitten too yeah yeah yeah. To, are you sure about that i'll have to check that out i am and i'll i will drop a link into the show notes <laughs> all right we gotta put that link in the show notes i was at a concert i was at one of these uh fish concerts and somebody walked by me with a shirt that said michigan america's high five and i was like yeah, man. <laughs> America's high five. I like that. So uh, anyway, um, that t-shirt will not win a lakey. Uh, maybe Michigan Birding 101 will tune in in about a month to find out. And right now, though, go vote on lakeys, bitly.com slash lakeys21. Nominate some stuff, and then um, we will figure out how to actually award the lakeys probably about 15 minutes before the show begins. Great. But Carolyn, it is, of course, a season in which as the weather starts to turn cold, the leaves go from green to resplendent colors towards brown as they begin to fall down, which is why this season is called fall, because the leaves fall. Um, In Canada, they think the leaves autumn down, but they don't. They fall down. Anyway, uh, it's a time to start turning kind of inward, I think, right? And so one way that people do that is uh, through thinking about sort of uh, good works and charity and what we can do to help our fellow uh, humans or, uh, you know, the the natural environment or whatever. It's a time of giving and a time of good works, isn't it? Yes. And um, we want to take this episode to acknowledge some of the fantastic work. I mean, so... We've talked to a lot of different people who are connected to the Great Lakes in one way or another. They live near them, they recreate near them, they do research on them, or they share historical facts. Um, But I think that 
you know, there's so many different organizations at so many different scales, all the way from like local to state or provincial to binational who are doing really, really awesome work to help protect this resource, which is, you know, really like a very unique resource on the planet, right? Um, So uh, we are talking to a couple. I wanted to mention a few that um, if you were to Google Great Lakes nonprofits, you'd probably see a couple right away who are doing lots of cool work. The Alliance for the Great Lakes is one of them. Um, Freshwater Future, there's some there. But um, I wanted to follow up specifically the Healing Our Waters Great Lakes Coalition. They host um, different conferences and things like that. And we'll put a link in there they've got a bunch of different member organizations and I think just looking at this list you get a sense of how many people care about the Great Lakes and how many people are trying to work you know either big pieces of the pie or tiny pieces of the pie to try to help preserve this absolutely wonderful resource. No I completely agree with that and and when we're looking into sort of people doing good works and nonprofits. Uh, yeah, that scale thing was what was so stunning to me, right? Exactly. Like all the way from these international things or even like IAGLER, uh, the International Association for Great Lakes Research. Um, you know, we have attended and, and podcasted from their conference the last couple of years uh, down to, you know, small groups making a difference um, within, you know, individual areas and states. Like there's this great one that we were talking to somebody um, from this called Brown Faces Green Spaces in Indiana. And they work to try to expand access in, in just a small area, you know, under that idea, I think of uh, 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 thinking globally, but acting locally. And, and, and I think that thing you mentioned is just right. This is a really unique resource and doing this show for, has it been, oh my goodness, it's been about two years now, um, uh, has really helped to drive that home for me. Uh, that just, it's, this is, this is a rare, unique and, and, um, imperiled, not necessarily fragile, but the way, but imperiled resource. Right. And, uh, uh, so seeing these these different organizations at these different scales has been really something else. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and say that link. It's healthylakes.org slash members. That's where the list is that I'm talking about. But we did get a chance to talk to just two, unfortunately. Maybe we can do more in the future. Um, but we talked to two really awesome nonprofits for this episode. Um, so do we want to go to those now? Yeah. Why don't we go to those now? And I'm speaking with Mark Matson, the Lake Ontario waterkeeper and the president of Swim Drink Fish. Sorry. No, that's exactly it. Okay, great. Thank you. So, um, Mark, we're really excited to speak with you today about the work you're doing on Lake Ontario. Can you tell us a little bit about? First, let's back up and say, what is a waterkeeper? Back in the 90s, when I was an environmental lawyer, I didn't know what a waterkeeper was either, but I got approached by what's the Waterkeeper Alliance. And it was that's a group of river keepers, bay keepers, stream keepers, um, water keepers that really, um, you know, help organize um, pers- people or communities around um, having a dedicated um, group towards protecting the water body, the water body where they live. So um, you know, I know on the Great Lakes, we have Milwaukee Riverkeeper, Detroit Riverkeeper, um, Buffalo Niagara Riverkeeper, Save the River, I know has a St. Lawrence Riverkeeper. So we have these groups and, and they really focus, you know, 100% on the community and the, and the water and the, you know, the watershed that they live in. 
I like to define it because I'm on the Great Lakes and out of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement back in 72, I think it's the 50th anniversary next year, <clears throat> you know, it really set out the gold standard um, was to protect the Great Lakes so they're swimmable, drinkable, and fishable. And, um, you know, that was a really amazing way to define what we're for on the Great Lakes while we work against what we're against <laughs> but it really helps define you know scientifically legally the roles of public health and others around these uses because you know it's great i always say you know swimmability recreational water is the gateway for many of us to our connection with the great lakes and drinkability clearly is like it's the it's the foundation of why we're here and fishability really links to a past where a lot of people got their food from the great lakes and, and although it's not as common any longer maybe it should be maybe that's a red flag but so that's for humans and then think about you know the creatures that can't read the signs don't drink don't swim and don't fish in that water um they're not getting those warnings so we have this incredible you know then loss to the ecosystem as well so if we set out to have swimmable drinkable fishable water um on the great lakes and we have groups that are dedicated to making sure that that happens in every community that's sort of the the idea behind the waterkeeper movement that's awesome. Thank you. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit more about specifically what you're doing in, in the Lake Ontario, um, the, lake, it, the lake itself, and if it's surrounding tributaries or things like that, to help it be swimmable, drinkable, and fishable? Sure. It's, it's our 20th anniversary, so I have so many stories. <laughs> and we've worked in so many different places, but I always chronologically um, you know, I was an environmental lawyer. I was representing a lot of communities. And at the time in the 90s, there was a lot of um, real focus around landfills and discharging of toxins into rivers and into bays and into communities. And I was working a lot um, on closing and capping those sites, some historic and some still operating. Um, so when I became the Lake Ontario waterkeeper, I continued with a lot of that work and ultimately found myself at the, uh, the large nuclear waste sites on the lake, um, Lake Ontario has both the Darlington and the Pickering nuclear power plants. Both have eight reactors. Um, and then a little town of Port Hope in Port Granby where they have the, you know, where the fuel's made. Um, Cameco makes the fuel um, on the lake as well. And they have a lot of historic waste. So we did a lot of work there, um, sampling, defining the waste, and, and you know, we tried to bring charges against the government. But at the end, they, they put together the largest cleanup on the Great Lakes, I think, ever. It's about $1.5 billion now in a small community of Port Hope to clean up the historic waste. And of course, there's still processes in place with the bigger um, high-level waste, which there still isn't um, any solution to. But, you know, these were issues we re really worked on early. Um, then sewage, um, you know, I started finding as the waterkeeper, the number one question I had was, can I swim in the lake? And I didn't have the answers. Um, I knew, depending on where you were, you know, some places were unswimmable and some weren't. And so we started to define the public spaces and the beaches. Um, we started with water quality sampling, getting it from the public health, and we produced beach reports. Ultimately, with technology, we, we created an app that's free to anyone. And we started um, updating water quality on that free app. It's called Swim Guide, theswimguide.org. And that Swim Guide, I think there's over 2,000 beaches on the Great Lakes. You can go, anybody listening today can go look at that and find their own beaches 
Um, there's an app and, 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 you know, on Google and Apple as well. But that actually grew um, beyond the Great Lakes. And there's 8,000 beaches worldwide now. We're in 11 countries. But there's a lot of affiliates, a lot of groups, local groups that collect water quality data, recreational water quality data, and are sharing it on that platform for free. So it's built a real nice community around swimmable waters, which was a response to sewage. Um, and then um, more recently, we're making a real push now with respect to waterfront revitalization and ensuring that there's accessible water for communities. So often they create these paths, great for bikes, which I love, the paths, public access, and you can get to the water, but you can't get in it <laughs> for whatever reason. And I think that those links are so important to our communities because that's, as I said from the beginning, like that's where people create their first connection, their emotional connection, and, and go on their own journey and discover you know, the needs of their community and meet people who are working for swimmable drinkable fish water. So we're starting with these peers. We, we have one signature one in Kingston, Ontario. It's called the Gord Edgar Downey Pier. I'm so glad you mentioned that. <laughs> Go ahead. A friend of mine and board member who lived across the street and always said if he'd help us out at Lake Ontario Waterkeeper, if we could ever get swimmable water in front of his house. So he did we did get his the name and you know it's his father's name in the middle of it. Gord unfortunately passed away before we jumped off a year later, but it is named um, after him. And it's a really people think it's weird that an environmental lawyer thinks it's great that he created a swimming pier, but it's all linked through my work at Waterkeeper. Right, that totally makes it. So I am really glad that you brought that up. I'm a Canadian living in the U.S., so I definitely watched the like CBC live stream of the tragically hippie event, and I'm going to put all of the links into the show notes, which I believe will be at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com/slash/45 for episode 45. I'll ask Stuart to correct that piece of this recording if I have the wrong number and I messed up somehow. But yeah, so I'm actually really excited that you brought that up. He was a really great person. Anybody who's listened to the tragic music knows him as a singer but you know and maybe more recently has worked for indigenous communities in Canada um, and we did a lot of traveled with him but he was an incredibly um, committed person to water and anyone who re- listens to his songs and you know how many are about water and he really worked hard on connecting people to the lakes and reminding them that that was his muse that's where he got all his ideas his power his creativity And he was always very open about that. And that, you know, Lake Ontario for him really was like his heart. And we had a, we did a Heart of a Lake once tour and he named it Heart of a Lake because he always felt like the lake really was his heart. That's fantastic. So what is a project that is kind of on the horizon for you that you're really excited about? Well, continuing on the theme of peers in Toronto, um, we've been sampling around the the city for a number of years, looking to see, you know, Toronto only has 11 beaches. Um, Eight of them are blue flag, which is great. So there is accessible water. During COVID, the demand went through the roof. It's clear that we don't have enough accessible water. And we've been sampling around the city and and there is an accessible, really incredible beach um, on the Southern side of downtown on something called Ontario Place, um, which was a piece of land owned provincially for many years originally was intended to try and connect Torontonians to Lake Ontario. For those who didn't have a cottage, they had a place to go. But it doesn't have a beach, uh, swimmable water. And yet we sampled and found that it could be some of the cleanest water and it was walkable to the core. And it's so beautiful and so wild um, that we've been really promoting it for four years, that anyone who does anything there should keep the public beach and, you know, create that link for Torontonians. And um, my experience from the Gord Downey Pier is it would be the most popular place in Toronto in the summer. 
but it would also have that what Canadians like to do. We're not, we don't usually walk into the water. We like to jump in. And so <laughs> have a pier and have deep water, cool water, and that experience with wilderness in the community in downtown Toronto would be a great thing. So I'm really focused on that. I'm working, I'm trying to get provincial, federal, local, public health, you know, teams together to really make sure that that piece of water, that piece of the Lake Ontario that, that we're working to clean up the other areas, but this one is now. And, you know, we do a lot of things for our children and stuff, but I also think we need to do things for ourselves sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> if we can create a pier there in my lifetime, that'd be a great thing. and something I'm working on. We're also, um, you know, we're still working on the nuclear issues. They're really serious. Um, there's a lot of issues in terms of money and where the cleanups happen. And the other lakes are involved, as you know, deep water geological um, proposal up in north of Godrich. Bruce Nuclear Plant there um, in Port Elgin and stuff. Um, what else are we working on? And then sewage. It's always, we're really promoting um, real-time monitoring of all discharges from all urban centers and cities. It's easy. It's technologically available to do. I mean, they monitor everything. I don't know why we don't know where the pipes are and when they're discharging and what they're discharging on a real-time basis. So the city of Kingston does that now. And we've got three other cities in Ontario and two others in Canada. But we have 800 municipal water systems in Canada. You guys probably have 3,000 on the Great Lakes in the U.S. <laughs> and I don't know how many Canada. But, you know, that data should be available in real time for the public so they know they can always check the water where they are. And if there is a pipe there and it hasn't been, the CSOs are still, you know, combined sewer overflows, they're still, the public should know and they should know when they're discharging. Um, and so we're really pushing for that. Um, we borrowed from a policy from New York, New York State. It was a right to know sort of policy. I don't think it ever got adopted, but we've been building on that, um, that those principles. And we've produced this sort of a, a model sewage alert on our website that any community can use and go to their town council and ask that their water utilities abide by that. So yeah, we're working on that. I guess lots of other things, but those are good. Those are some of the exciting. Okay. So um, where can people go to learn a little bit more about your organization and all these really awesome initiatives that you have going? Well, so two real cool platforms we've created. One is the swim guide. Definitely go to the swim guide, check your beach, see if you know what's going on in your community and maybe you want to contribute data to that um, platform. Um, we also have something called the Great Lakes Guide. It's just greatlakes.guide. And it's a platform that connects people to the Great Lakes in different ways, new communities, people who don't other articles about things you didn't know about the Great Lakes, very similar to what you're doing. I just, that's why I love the show <laughs> Me about the Great Lakes. I think water literacy about the Great Lakes is such an important, um, you know, component to protecting the Great Lakes. So that connection is so important. So that's why we have the Great Lakes Guide. And then Swim, Drink, Fish, that's the parent website, Swim, Drink, Fish. Um, and then there's Lake Ontario Waterkeeper, um, which is the lake site. And then, and hopefully if you go to those sites, you can find some, if you're looking for other groups anywhere in the Great Lakes, I think we try and make those links and tell the stories about each other because, yeah, we understand too that we all need to work together, particularly on the Great Lakes. You know, the eight states, the two provinces, the two countries, we have a lack of indigenous representation and governance um, you know, that has to be fixed going forward. Lack of, even though the, you guys put a lot of money in the Great Lakes just a couple of days ago, but that's great. But lack of sort of coordinated funding between the two governments and other governments. And, and I just think, you know, just, we just need to update on what waste we've put in and what our goals are. And I'd love them to affirm swimmable, drinkable, fishable water again going forward as, you know, realistic goals 
um, for every community. And let's not normalize um, water that is unfit for swimming or for drinking or for fishing. That's great. This has all been fantastic. I really have enjoyed speaking with you and listening to all of the great work that your organization is doing. It wouldn't be Teach Me About the Great Lakes if I didn't ask you the very important question, which is, if you could have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would it be? Ooh, that's, well, given that I haven't eaten today, like both of them are really <laughs> my attention. Um, <laughs> And being Canadian um, and always having a coffee, uh, you know, historically it would have been that donut with coffee. Now that I'm 60, I might be looking for a healthier sandwich and skipping the donut. So I'll go with the donut for now and then I'll get healthier next year. (laughs) That sounds like a good plan. And so where can we go to get a really good donut when we're, are you in Toronto or are you in Kingston right now? I'm in Toronto. All right. So in Toronto, where can we get a really good donut? Well, Princess Donuts up on DuPont is a good one, I think. I don't know if they're there anymore. It, it, um, otherwise, probably I end up always, unfortunately, but I always end up at the Tim Hortons, um, just having a straight up apple fritter. If they have them, otherwise a honey dip donut. Those are sort of the two standards. <laughs> So thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Best of luck with your work. And um, thank you for coming on and teaching us about the Great Lakes. I'm talking with Mark Fisher. He is the president and CEO of the Council of the Great Lakes Region. Um, and they have a new or newish circular Great Lakes initiative that I want to hear all about today. Mark, how are you? Nice to be with you, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. We're glad to have you on. So first, let's start with what is the Council of the Great Lakes Region? I'm, I'm not familiar with this council, but it, anything called council must be big. <laughs> Great question, Stuart. Thanks. Thanks for asking it. Uh, we've actually been around since 2013. And the idea of the council really came out of a body of research that was being undertaken by Brookings, uh, the Metropolitan Policy Program, uh, the Mowat Center at the University of Toronto at the time to really think about um, this Great Lakes region. So eight Great Lakes states, New York to Minnesota, Ontario and Quebec has this massive shared economy between both countries. And so what can we do across sectors and borders to really improve this region's long-term competitiveness because it is a fully integrated economy, but also how do we work together across borders to protect the Great Lakes, to protect the environment for, for future generations? And that research culminated in a conference in 2011 in the Detroit-Windsor area that brought together over 400 different uh, leaders from, from business, from all levels of government, academia, the broader nonprofit sector. And what came out of that conversation was that we really needed to have a forum in the region where all of those different interests and perspectives could come together as one to really understand these large uh, socioeconomic environmental issues that we're facing this mega region, uh, not just the Great Lakes. Um, and, and ultimately, how do we then connect, uh, convene, work together to identify the, the, the pathways, the solutions that will do a better job of harnessing the region's economic strengths and assets, um, you know, improving the well-being of the region's citizens. This region is, on a, on a broad basis, home to 107 million people. 
Um, but then also, how do we protect the Great Lakes? And so um, that really led to the Council of the Great Lakes region's creation in 2013. It started with a nonprofit corporation in Ontario and Canada. And then a few years after that, we created a 501c6 uh, organization in Ohio called Council of the Great Lakes Region USA. And then we have a 501c3 foundation uh, called the Council of the Great Lakes Region Foundation or CGLR Foundation, uh, which is where the lion's share of our work happens because most of the stuff that we do is, is charitable and in the public interest and really trying to advance Again, this multi-sector, multi-stakeholder dialogue. So we've been around for a while. We're growing and, um, you know, really appreciate the opportunity to explain a bit more about our mission and our mandate. Yeah, sure. So what are some of the things you've been around longer than I realized? That's about eight, I guess, nine years coming up. What are some of the sort of keystone accomplishments in that time? And, you know, first of all, bringing together groups of people is hard um, and slow, right? But but what kinds of stuff have you all done uh, in, in that time? Yeah, well, it is slow. It is tedious. Um, there, there are historical organizations in the in the region. You know, uh, you know. Obviously, we've got the, the the Conference of Great Lakes Governors and Premiers. You know, we've got uh, the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Cities Initiative, which engages mayors. Um, you know, we've got the Great Lakes Legislative Caucus, which is a consortium of of state provincial lawmakers that care about the Great Lakes in the region. You know, we've got the Great Lakes Task Force at the congressional level. But these groups very rarely ever connect and and convene and and talk to each other um, and 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 doing so alongside again other you know other experts and um, you know participants again whether that's industry leaders you know whether that's academia or the environmental groups um, and so one thing that we did early on in our mandate was launch the Great Lakes Economic Forum um, and because of the pandemic we've had to postpone that since 2020 hoping to get back to it in person next year in Chicago. Um, But the Great Lakes Economic Forum has really been our our major, our platform for bringing together all these different perspectives to talk about these issues and to ultimately build dialogues coming out of the forum, you know, and a commitment to work together, uh, whether it's looking at creating a group that wants to uh, look at the Great Lakes auto sector and the future of mobility and how does that sector remain competitive you know, in this global economy? How do we think about, you know, healthcare and um, aerospace and space technology strengths that we have in the region? How do we think about how we can be a North American and global leader in, in producing more food for an increasingly hungry world and doing that in a sustainable way? So the forum has been this great place for really talking about these these sectors and industries that we have in the region, how they are connected across borders and what more we need to do to make them um, successful and so that the region can compete and win in the future. But it's also then looking at, um, you know, again, how do we work together to protect the Great Lakes, protect the environment for future generations? It is the largest freshwater system in the world. There are legacy issues that we need to to tackle and combat. And, you know, the United States has been doing, you know, a, a tremendous job through the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative in really addressing some of those those past conflicts with the economy cleaning up those areas of concern, for example, addressing nutrients, responding to climate change, invasive species. Um, the, on the Canadian side, however, it's been a lot slower. You know, we've been, you know, one of the, I think one of the successes we've had is, is really trying to marshal a larger uh, network and, and a stronger voice to, to make sure that both governments are equally investing in the protection of the Great Lakes um, and making sure that we're developing a sustainable future, a sustainable economy in this region. So 
Why do you? Uh, so that's, that's surprising for me to hear that you feel like Canadian. Uh, Canadian. Uh, Canada would be another word for it. That Canada has been a little bit behind the United States because, kind of in my mind, I'm like, in Canada, they got your health care. Uh, they're <laughs> more progressive um, and that sort of stuff, as opposed to the United States. But that's uh, that's you're saying they're a little bit slower. Why do you think that is? Well, it's it's hard to say, but you know, here 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 are the numbers, Stuart. So you know, since 2008 and the uh, launch of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, the United States has spent you know over two billion dollars on you know restoration uh, priorities. Again, climate change, nutrients, um, invasive species, cleaning up areas of concern. You know, and that you know, you know, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is is roughly a $350 million a year spend growing to about 450, I think, over the next uh, three to four years, 450 million. And then with the passage of the infrastructure bill, um, you know, Congress has just approved, you know, an additional 1 billion uh, for Great Lakes Restoration over the next five years. So if you add that on top of um, the baseline funding, it's an incredible investment that the United States is making uh, in the Great Lakes. On the Canadian side, you know our freshwater action plan, which is for all of the country, is a is a is seventy five million dollar a year spend over five years, right? Um, and then when you look at it just in terms of the Great Lakes investment, it's only about nine million dollars a year, you know, for you know what forty five million over five years. So it, we're not even in the same conversation, right? Um, you know, and I think we've been doing a lot of work over the last couple of years just to remind the government of Canada that this is a binational asset. It's a globally significant ecosystem. Um, you know, Canada, you know, used to be a global leader when it came to environmental science, water science, water management, water conservation. And so really now it's time to to um, to to level up and to really start investing more again in, in cleaning up areas of concern, but getting ready to respond to those, those emerging pressures that we all know are coming in, in particularly in terms of climate change, you know, in the last election, the Trudeau government, um, which was reelected, you know, did campaign on investing 1 billion over 10 years in a strengthened freshwater action plan. So that would be about a hundred million dollars a year. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how much that will mean for the Great Lakes, but it's certainly a lot more than what's been there. They also campaigned on creating an independent Canada water agency, um, you know, and so, you know, as the parliament in Canada, you know, comes back next week after the election and we see our, you know, the next budget, um, you know, we're hoping to see all these priorities, you know, you know, come to the foreground and sort of be implemented by the Trudeau government and really start a, a process or a process of catching up to the United States. Um, and we think the timing is perfect. You know, next year is the 50th anniversary of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. Um, and so, you know, we, we really need to start um, becoming a lot more aligned between both countries in terms of how we think about this resource and protect this resource for future generations. And so, so one thing that y'all are doing as part of the Council of the Great Lakes region then, so that's, uh, first of all, it's right. Anytime you have council in your name, you're doing big stuff. Um, and so uh, that's good. I won't disagree good. with that, Stuart. Yeah, I'll confirm my own prior. Um, but uh, so, but one of the things you're doing that's smaller than all of this, but still big, is this uh, Circular Great Lakes Initiative. Can you tell me a little bit about what is that exactly? Yeah, well, again, you know, thanks for asking the question. Um, you know, as we know, over the last decade plus, uh, you know, the science about the ocean gyres, uh, plastic waste and erosions has certainly been picking up pace. And I think, um, you know, that really, 
you know, captured everybody's attention when that photo of the straw and the turtle's nose circulated the globe. And I think, you know, uh, you know, a photo can all, you know, you know, say so much. And I think it really did galvanize, you know, industry and government and so many others about the fact that we've got this oceans plastic waste problem and we need to start really, you know, addressing it in a significant way. And, you know, that started the global conversation. Um, but, you know, around that time over the last couple of years, and particularly when Canada was hosting the G7 and uh, the um, and uh, was really focused on developing an oceans charter, which included um, plastic litter, plastic waste. You know, we were putting our hand up as an organization and reminding both the United States and Canada that, you know, what we're seeing through research in the Great Lakes, that we've got an emerging and very concerning plastic waste and plastic litter problem right here in our own Great Lakes in our in our freshwater ecosystem, which in many ways functions as an oceans because as an ocean, because it is so big. Um, and just to give you, you know, some of the numbers. So, you know, roughly 80 percent of the material that's washing up on the Great Lakes shoreline is is plastic. You know, research by the Rochester Institute of Technology, you know, estimates, you know, through formulas that are used, equations that are used for the oceans, you know, it estimates that roughly 20 million pounds of plastics could be flowing into the Great Lakes every year through a variety of sources and pathways. You know, as a region, we're still sending way too much of valuable material to our landfills, um, an extraordinary amount of, of materials, you know, that could be reused in our economy or just getting lost as waste to our landfills. And so, you know, because of that, you know, we we launched the Circular Great Lakes Initiative um, to really try to bring together, you know, the different sectors and value chains that sort of make and use plastics, you know, policymakers and others to look at how do we understand the major gaps in the Great Lakes region when it comes to collection, processing and end markets, you know, how consumers interact with plastics products, how do they think about recycling, you know, how are governments through their policies and regulations, um, you know, enabling, you know, sort of a more circular economy as opposed to incentivizing, um, you know, waste to landfill. You know, we have very low tipping fees for landfills in the region, which is part of the problem. So, how are governments, you know, in, ensuring that we can improve the capture and recovery of valuable materials and get that material back into a circular economy? But also, how are we investing in infrastructure? You know, our material recovery facilities, you know, in many ways were designed for a waste stream 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and it was much simpler than it was glass and it was paper and it was metals. And so with the addition of plastics, um, you know, it, it, the waste stream has become a lot more complex. And so, we need that modernization of that technology. And so the Circular Great Lakes Initiative was really a first attempt at bringing together, again, these, these different uh, players and actors to think about how we perform as a region when it comes to those issues and, and really trying to then create a, a roadmap, a North Star in terms of how do we create a more circular economy in the Great Lakes. And as just, just as a final thought, um, you know, as we as we capture more waste, recover more uh, valuable material, you know, and have it reused in the economy, but also looking at how do we reduce sometimes our reliance on plastics, you know, obviously that will mean less litter flowing into our environment in our Great Lakes. And so um, so this is this is really a, a systemic roadmap in terms of how do we do a better job of creating more circular systems and cities and, and industries in the region. The byproduct of that hopefully will be less waste and litter in our environment. You know, and then, you know, just as a final thought, you know, as we're doing the circular Great Lakes, we've also launched an initiative called the Great Lakes Plastics Cleanup with an initiative um, uh, in partnership with with Pollution Probe, uh, also with some funding from NOAA 
to expand it in the United States, where we're actually trying to clean up plastics in the environment because we know it's there. It needs to be cleaned up at the same time as we're trying to create this larger circular economy in the Great Lakes. That's what I think is so that's interesting is you're doing the kind of bottom up, I guess, or, or, you know, like picking up the stuff, but also working on this big level. What I think is interesting about the circular economy approach, which I hadn't actually heard about until um, we interviewed somebody from the University of Toronto trash team a couple of uh, episodes ago. But but it's it's treating this as uh, the way you put it was, uh, yeah, we can use this stuff in our economy. Right. It's an explicitly economic approach to an environmental problem, um, which is. Uh, it's a little bit different from what we normally hear about, right? Which is the economy and the environment are kind of in conflict. Here's an explicit economic uh, solution to it. I think that's a really interesting approach. It is It is an interesting approach. Um, we certainly feel that when we look back at sustainability issues, the economy and the environment, um, you know, traditionally people have seen them in conflict, but we actually think that they can work uh, together. Um, they don't have to be this, this competing um you know, uh, demands between, you know, do you grow the economy? Do you protect the environment? We think that you can do both. We can do it in a way that is good for people, good for planet and is good for profit. Right. Um, and so it is it is trying to marry those concepts. And and I think if we can do that um, and demonstrate how we can do that in a region like the Great Lakes, which is, again, North America's economic engine is by far the most important economic region to the United States and Canada. If we can demonstrate we can do this in the Great Lakes region, you know, we will ensure our long-term competitiveness and sustainability, which is good for the region, but also will make us more competitive, um, you know, in a global economy that is ultimately shifting, you know, to these new industries and these new services and these these new kind of sustainable mindsets. Well, Mark, this is uh, really interesting stuff, and it sounds like you're doing great work, but that's actually not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. <laughs> the reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. The first one is this. If you could have a uh, great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? I'd have to say for breakfast, it would be a double chocolate donut. and that's Double just, chocolate donut? Yeah, and that's just to give me that uh, that sugar punch in the morning and get me going alongside a coffee. Yes, I love it. So uh, where are you based out of these days? I'm actually based in Ottawa, Canada. Um, and in a non-pandemic year, I'd spend most of my time traveling across the region on both sides of the border. And now that the U.S.-Canada border is opening up and more and more people are getting vaccinated, um, you know, obviously it's becoming a bit easier to sort of get back and travel again and, and really experience this beautiful region that we call the Great Lakes. There we go. There we go. So before we get there, I, I, I want to hear about your, your travels. Where can I go to get a really great donut, either in Ottawa or since you're so well-traveled, anywhere throughout the Great Lakes? I'm a bit biased, but if you ever make it to Ontario, Canada, and I understand that the chain is expanding into the United States, but my favorite donuts are from Tim Hortons. Um, okay. Yeah, which is kind of like your Dunkin' Donuts. I, 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 yeah, no, I know Tim Hortons. Yeah, they have them um, somewhere. My wife is from the Midwest. I'm from the Gulf South. But uh, somewhere we used to go to a family thing that had Tim Hortons. And so I remember one morning, I don't know why I went into Tim Hortons at two. I can't remember if I was coming or going, but uh, I've been to Tim Hortons. <laughs> Fantastic. But so you are well-traveled. And that kind of brings us to the second question, right? Is there like a place in the Great Lakes? You know, we like to share wonderful places to try to help people realize what an amazing resource this is. Is there a place in the Great Lakes that's really special to you? And, and if so, why, why is that? It's always a tough question because uh, because I deal with the Great Lakes and it's like having multiple children. You love them all equally. Um, and I've traveled with my family from the bottom of the, you know, Great Lakes and Lake Ontario to the top in Lake Superior. And there are so many beautiful places all in between. I would have to say my favorite is, is where I grew up, which is Coburg, Ontario. 
you know, has the uh, slogan of Ontario's feel good town. It's right on Lake Ontario. It's got one of the best beaches on Lake Ontario. Um, that's where I go home to really recharge my batteries when I have an opportunity to do so. That sounds awesome. I agree. Well, Mark, if people want to find out more about the Circular Great Lakes Initiative or the Council in the Great Lakes region or even the Great Lakes Plastics Cleanup, Plastic Cleanup, where should they go? Well, our main website is councilgreatlakesregion.org, and I certainly encourage people to go there. Uh, if they want to learn more about the Circular Great Lakes Initiative, uh, they can go to that project website, which is circulargreatlakes.org, and that is a more uh, specific website to, for that initiative. Um, but either way, um, we would certainly welcome uh, people to visit us and learn more about us and hopefully think about becoming a member um, and potentially a donor uh, for through our CGLR Foundation. Where's the best place to do that? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say you can do that through our main website, councilgreatlakesregion.org. Um, you can see uh, on the about page how to become a member in the U.S. or Canada or how to donate. And as you know, with most nonprofits, um, you know, uh, our, our success is really driven by the people who want to join and participate and support our work financially. So we would certainly welcome that. Great. Well, I encourage you listeners to go look at the show notes for all of those links and more. Um, and uh, look at this really worthy cause doing important work and doing it from a perspective that's a little bit different from a lot of what we have on the show. So I really appreciate you uh, lending that to us. Mark Fisher, the president and CEO of the Council of the Great Lakes Region. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us about the Great Lakes. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Stuart. Right, so that was a fun conversation that I had with Mark Matson. I really, really enjoyed speaking with him. And he, he said he'd be willing to come back and chat with us again about all the cool work they're doing. So, Yeah, that's great. I can't wait. Uh, yeah, we, we haven't done our editorial planning for next year. We need to. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it'd be great to talk to him again. Uh, uh, and also great to talk to Mark Fisher again, of course. Um, you know, it seems like he could talk for hours and hours about the, the important issues going on in the Great Lakes. And I really appreciated the chance to get that sort of different perspective because we don't talk to groups quite like that and people who work so closely with industry. We tend to be more on the academic and, and, and uh, uh, hippy-dippy side. One thing I do, I did kind of note during my conversation with Mark, though, Mark Matson was, um, you know, just how many things it, it like ha the strength of personal connection to the lakes, which um, and, and how some people can live right next to the, next to the lakes and maybe not have that personal connection the same way. Um, so I feel like that's a theme that runs through. <laughs> we've got a couple of themes through Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Modeling um, <laughs> is cool. Uh, personal connections, uh, values and things like that. So it's just really fun to talk to people about this place. No, I, I hear you. Yep. Uh, and that's part of why we changed the second question, right? Um, uh, to asking about places that are, you know, wonderful places within the Great Lakes because I, I like to explore that personal connection with people a little bit. I certainly didn't forget to do the second question in my interview. <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> I know because I've listened to your interview already. Um, and so I know that you didn't forget to do it. But anyway, it reminds me, it, um, you know, when I worked at Texas Sea Grant, one of the things we, we would talk about that identity idea a lot. And, and you're right, it is a theme here too, because the idea was, we thought that felt like for a lot of people, Texas wasn't a coastal state, but a state with a coast. 
Um, and so you sort of get that. And that, that idea of connection is the same thing. And obviously that wasn't true for everybody in Texas. But at, at Sea Grant, at Texas Sea Grant, what we talked about was how do we how do we instill that ethic of it being a coastal state, not just a state with a coast? Plug again for the, the bits that we talked about at the beginning that you can learn about all, like these, not just the two that we spoke with, but a bunch of other um, nonprofits as well. We'll put a bunch of links into the notes. We encourage you to discover what they're doing. Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. You should do that. Um, and if, you know, obviously it's a crazy time right now, but if you do have some, uh, the ability, I, you know, uh, these are wonderful places to support with your dollars too. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that, uh, we are also a wonderful place to support with your dollars. And so, um, we'll have a link if you wanted to donate to Illinois Indiana Sea Grant or teach me about the Great Lakes as well. But we encourage you to support whatever charity speaks to you, whether it's, um, one of the ones we featured today, whether it's one in the show notes or whether it's one, um, that, that is there because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's important, important. And listeners, do you have a favorite Great Lakes related uh, nonprofit or charity or something like that? You can email it to us and we, maybe we'll talk about it on the air a little bit. That's teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or more importantly, or not more importantly, more better. <laughs> more better. Yes. Uh, <laughs> more better. Why don't you call the hotline? 765-496-IISG. That's 4474, as everybody can tell you. Um, so I encourage you to go and do that. Yes, we would love to hear from people. Yeah, no, we do love to hear from you. So tell us your favorite Great Lakes and why it's awesome. Uh, either leave a message or leave an email and we will uh, talk about it on the air. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. And we encourage you to check out the great work that we do at iisegrant.org and at Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, the music knower Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and of course, Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, who hates me. And I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it, teachingmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. Leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show if you want to Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, keep grading those lakes. Beep, 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 beep.